0: I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. So in today's episode, I'll be speaking with a special guest. Dr. Griffin Myers is the chief medical officer of Oak Street Health, a Chicago-based network of primary care clinics that are specially designed to serve older adults. And Dr. Myers and I first connected in early 2013, when he and his colleagues were just getting Oak Street Health launched. And I was, of course, very glad to hear that they were designing a primary care practice from the ground up, specifically to better serve the needs of people aged 65 and older, because I know that older adults often get better health care from clinics that have been set up with them in mind, and that are specially set up to address the things that we know are important to maintaining health and well-being while aging. As you may know, although most primary care clinics do serve a lot of older patients, they're almost never particularly designed for this purpose, and this may be part of the reason why research shows that older adults often don't get the care that they need or the care that is recommended for older adults from their usual doctors. So it's really a pleasure to have Dr. Myers on the podcast today to tell us more about Oak Street Health and how they have created these clinics that provide better health care to older adults and a better primary care experience for them. Griffin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so before we talk about Oak Street Health in particular, you are actually board certified in emergency medicine, and it's a mutual friend of ours who's in emergency medicine who introduced us. So, you know, I was kind of struck by this, that somebody in emergency medicine wanted to create primary care clinics for older adults. Tell us a little bit more about what led you to become interested in doing this.
1: Sure. So, you know, look, the story of Oak Street is really the story of the whole team. Um, mine is just one story, but there are a lot of people who are focused on the and, and share the values that we share at Oak Street around personal, equitable and accountable care. But for me, uh, I chose to go into emergency medicine uh, as a guy actually who passed out cold the first two times he went into the operating room and. Um, so not not apparently physiologically well designed to deal with some of the things you see. But I really chose emergency medicine because I didn't want to care uh, whether patients could pay me for their care or not. Uh, there there's an underlying commitment to to access to care that I really share that drove me to to the ED. And then interestingly, the the idea for Oak Street, at least in my mind, um, I have two co-founding colleagues. But for me, the motivator was seeing people in the emergency department, many of whom were older, uh, many of whom were lower income, living in communities that were medically underserved and did not have access to neighborhood culturally competent primary care. Um, The failures of that system were what got people to end up in the emergency department in the first place. And we as a department And I think this is true of most emergency departments. The answer was always, how can we get better as an emergency department within the walls of the hospital to deliver better care to patients? Um, But it turns out what folks needed is not a better, faster emergency department. They needed access to great primary care. And really how I transitioned out of the emergency department to doing primary care was that, trying to solve the answer and really for us at Oak Street, we wanted to focus on older adults, especially older adults living in communities where they don't have great access to care because um, that's the problem we're facing in, in health care. The, the problem we have as a country and really as as a planet is not it's, – it's not delivering better care to well-off young healthy people. It, it's delivering better care to people who need that care and a lot of those folks are older.
0: Yeah, so true that uh, that often people are there in the emergency room and what they really need, and I think what they really want, too, is to have a better primary care clinic um, so that they don't end up needing to go to the emergency room. So now about Oak Street Health in particular. So how is it different from your average primary care clinic?
1: Yeah, I think it's natural to start with the clinic and think what's different about the clinic. And I would encourage, as I do our teams and our patients to think about it, not as a clinic, but a whole healthcare experience. And the reason I say that is, as a patient, even someone who goes to the doctor a lot, you're going to spend 99% of your life not in the clinic. And what we're trying to provide at Oak Street is an entire experience around good health. The the average Medicare beneficiary in this country, which is the, the data set for which we have data on older adults, has three primary care visits in a year with two different primary care docs. And from the last year we have data, those visits average 17.4 minutes. Um, so for us, we really think about it as personal, equitable, and accountable care. Personal care means in a lot of cases, you're going to need more time than that. So, the average Oak Street visit is over 30 minutes. The average Oak Street patient is going to see us in clinic over eight times a year. And our sickest 5% of patients, we're going to see closer to 20 times a year. So, you can see it's just a far more uh, integrated way to play, way to, to practice medicine, a way to receive care. And another data point that, that I'll give you is that. So the, the average primary care doc in the United States takes care of 2,500 people. Um, we have a team-based approach, and our team, which is made up of six people, and we can certainly talk about the way the teams work, is takes care of 500 people. Oh, wow. So it's a far more intimate way to practice. And and the reason that we do that is we just don't believe one size fits all. It, it's very hard to imagine that the same seven- or eight-minute visit slot um, that you're going to see a, a healthy 26 year old, uh, is the right amount of time and the right resourcing and the right approach for someone who's 68 years old, um, has a couple of chronic conditions and, and wants to spend more time managing those conditions. It, it's just hard for us to believe that one size fits all. And that's what we hear from our patients.
0: Right, right. So, um, that's uh, great, so longer visits and many of your, it sounds like Uh, most of your patients are coming in more often than average. You said, uh, I think, eight times a year and that the sickest ones come in 20 times a year, which doesn't surprise me because I think if you have a lot of things going on, you can certainly easily come in uh, twice a month. And then a smaller panel for your teams. Now, one thing that comes up for me is, are you doing longer visits and seeing them more often because your patients are actually sicker or more complicated than the average person on Medicare?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. So this is going to get a little bit wonky, but, um, we, we, as a, as a part of our mission, so that the mission at Oak street, uh, has always been to rebuild healthcare as it should be, and it should be personal. It should be equitable and it should be accountable. And that second item around health equity is really important to us. And it's, it's about creating access to our services in neighborhoods where they don't exist. And frankly, where they're most needed. Um, when, when you, the the way that we numerically can help represent that is a little over half of our patients are are what or what is called dually eligible, meaning they are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, which means old enough to receive Medicare but also are poor enough to qualify for Medicaid. Um, that's the population that that really. Um, tends to statistically, and it's it's a it's a true statement, but we again when we think about large populations, it's important because these we have statistics to help describe our population. That's the population in this country that tends to have the highest burden of disease uh, and then also have the least access to to care, however you would want to define access. Nationwide, about 13% of patients who have Medicare are also poor enough to have Medicaid. For us at Oak Street, it's well over half. And so what that means is we're working in a population that not only has a higher burden of disease, uh, and we see that in all of our epidemiologic benchmarks. So over 40% of our patients have diabetes, over 25% have congestive heart failure, 10% or so have active cancer. Those are really big numbers relative to the national averages. But at the same time, because they are patients who are duly eligible, both Medicare and Medicaid, it means that they are traditionally going to have lower access to healthcare services to deal with their conditions. So it means they're sicker and also have fewer resources to help manage those conditions. And that's that's really what motivates us at Oak Street. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So a lot of your patients have both Medicaid and Medicare, but also it sounds like half of them are just on Medicare. So if someone is, say, uh, middle class and has Medicare and wants to join Oak Street Health. Are they able to do so?
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. So th- I think the thing that is important for that w- we always say this is uh, we have patients from all different stripes. We we have twenty four locations now and more coming. We we take care of over thirty thousand people. Uh, we practice in seven different languages. We have people uh, like we talked about uh, on Medicaid who are quite poor, but we also have folks um, living in nice neighborhoods who can really afford whatever they would like, who of all of their options choose us because they believe our care model is best designed to help them um, manage their conditions and manage their health. The reason that that I talk a lot about Medicare and Medicaid is I want people to know that, number one, health equity is an important value we share at Oak Street. And number two, we are, and I'm very biased, obviously, as a founder of the organization, but uh, we have really good evidence that would suggest we're the very best at taking care of people with Ah, uh, multiple chronic conditions. Who are up against a lot when it comes to dealing with their health. Um, you don't have to be. You don't have to be poor, and you don't have to be sick to be an Oak Street patient. Uh, many of our patients are not, but we are very well equipped to care for folks in those settings.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, patients who have a lot of chronic conditions and uh, live with limited resources and other uh, struggles are certainly among the most challenging to care for, but. I think it's nice to hear that you have so many people who are not Medicaid, not because it's less important, but because I know that a lot of older people and families feel like they fall into this sort of hole where they're actually not doing that well financially and they're struggling, but they're not quite poor enough to qualify for Medicaid, at least not until sometimes people get quite old and spend down their assets because they're trying to, to get help at home. And so um, it's nice to know that
1: you're speaking from experience.
0: Well, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people who are not, you know, are not yet qualifying for Medicaid, but they need more help and they'd like more support. And in a lot of parts of the country, they have, you know, they have difficulty finding that kind of quality care. Because, uh, understandably, we often prioritize it for people who are even worse off than they are, or because states may have special programs that are available just to people who are duly eligible. And you know, one example that I think of is um, the pace clinics, the program for, of all-inclusive care for the elderly, which you know are those special clinics for older adults who usually are eligible for nursing home care. And historically, they've, they've mostly been available just to people who are on both programs, because if you didn't have Medicaid, you could join, but you had to pay the portion that Medicaid would otherwise be paying. And people felt like that was just unaffordable. So um, so it's nice to see options available to people who still might be struggling but are not quite yet at the point where they've spent down to uh, Medicaid, or just you know have been a little bit more fortunate, even though they're still not necessarily doing super well.
1: Well I would, if you if you don't mind, I actually think there's two important comments there. Uh, one's a quick one, which is um, you're right. Pace programs have ha- the evidence behind pace programs, and their performance has been uh, really impressive, and it's something that we at Oak Street are actively looking into because we have patients for whom. PACE is a great option and frankly would let many patients who uh, may end up needing an institutional living environment not do that because of the level of support that they get. And the second comment I would make around affordability is that's an access question. Um, That means it's something that we at Oak Street care a lot about. I I will tell you, we've done some really unique work here um, because if patients can't afford their medications or can't afford services, That actually is our problem at Oak Street. Just given we're a full value-based practice, um, it means that we've developed a lot of tools and a lot of intelligence in how patients are solving the problems of affordability. Uh, Number one is we've found, and and there's been some Kaiser literature uh, from the Kaiser Family Foundation that's also shown this: that patients really don't know and feel overwhelmed, and they want of all of the people in their lives to help them, Uh, they actually want their caretakers, um, meaning you and I, the the doctors and nurses and people on the care team, to help advise them with that. And it's just, it's yet another thing for us to learn, but what we've done at Oak Street is create teams of folks. There's a person in every clinic called a patient relations manager uh, who is there to help patients and their families address issues around access to care and affordability. And, And really, we spend quite a bit of time helping patients and families just understand their options. Um, one example is, is options in things like, um, you know, there, there are special needs plans for people with certain conditions. Um, there are things like Medicare Advantage. Uh, we don't sell any of those things, but I've found that people like the ability to consider their options in those settings. And the second thing that we've learned that's really interesting is um, when people change their plan. When they change how they receive their Medicare or their Medicaid benefit, uh, we've gone back and asked them, what was it that made you change? And in the overwhelming majority of cases, people didn't even know they changed. And so it does feel like it's on us as provider teams to include that as a part of our as a part of our assessment and and we talk about it as there's there's clearly right when when you break down the the challenges that patients and family face that they can be physical uh, they can be mental and behavioral but they also can be financial and social and if we don't think about those things um, we're probably not doing the best job we can, and it's something that we found really important at Oak Street. Right.
0: Well, let me bring up two sort of common sources that I hear about of uh, of frustration or anxiety or desire for help. Um, so one is, as you mentioned, affording medications, and even people with you know their Medicare Part D plans can have pretty substantial out of pocket costs. And then the sure. other one is figuring out how to afford help for somebody who is older and maybe starting to struggle in certain ways. So are your patient relations specialists able to help people with those, or do you have someone else in the clinic? How do you help people with those issues that come up, Um, again, for a lot of people who don't yet have Medicaid, and then may also come up for people who are Medicare and Medicaid together?
1: Yeah. So, so the first question around medication, and and really not just medications, is being able to afford copays and all of those exactly. things. Exactly. Yeah, that's what a, that's what a patients relations manager at Oak Street is intended to do, and and they are they are intended to be and are experts really in all of the local options, because it's going to vary by state, by county, but being experts in all of the local options for each individual patient. And at Oak Street, those teams are really informed by some some really powerful technologies. For example, um, you know, patients who have certain conditions may qualify for special plans that actually help them pay for disease-specific medications and, and specialists and things like that in a very different way. They're called special needs plans. Um, they're going to vary on the county level. So you've got to be a local expert, but those are things that, that our PRMs are familiar with. The second, really your question around, I, I believe, was uh, if folks are going to need more help whether it's home care or, or institutional support, um, those are things that also are included in, in a PRM's uh, toolkit. Though, Clearly, they get harder, Leslie. I mean, I think it's a very different problem. Um, If someone has diabetes and has a hard time affording their medications, we can help them understand their special needs plans options, the diabetes special needs plans options, um, and help them navigate how to do that and even sit down with the care team to look for more affordable alternatives when it comes to medications and equipment. Um, When it comes to to institutions and and things that may require more help at home, um, we've got a lot of experience doing it. You know, th- those are larger policy questions, but insofar as resources can be made available, our, our teams are expert and have had quite a bit of success helping patients mm-hmm. solve
0: those problems. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned teams and uh, in a bit, I want you to talk more about who's on the team at Oak Street Health, But, but sure. in some clinics and not enough clinics, unfortunately, there are social workers that also help patients and families identify options that can provide a little extra support for some of the challenges that come up uh, when people age. So do you have social workers along with the patient uh, relation managers, or uh, who else is on the team to sort of help people with all those, those sort of questions of uh, social support and finding a little extra help outside the clinic?
1: Yeah so we do we 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 use have a a role on the team called a care manager the profile of which is a licensed clinical social worker um just to step back to describe an oak street team yeah. every oak street team is is made up of a physician a nurse practitioner a registered nurse a medical assistant a scribe Really who does documentation for that team and helps manage their their information flows and a care manager. and And I mentioned the profile of that care manager. In addition to, in addition to the role, they are supported with some really powerful tools to help them um, you know, simplify and keep organized all of the the challenges that our communities of patients may face and help them structure their work and and really help prioritize. For example, it would be far more important to us um, and, and to our patients that, for example, our, our patients who are in the hospital and are going to be facing a transition, you know, potentially to a, a post-acute facility like a skilled nursing facility, um, and, and and then back to home. There's a lot that needs to be done to help them make that transition in a safe, high quality way. And we want to be sure that that our care managers know when that happens so that they can um, get get to the facility and visit with the team and family and, and, and help make that transition possible. But that's the team and the role that the care manager plays is, is, as you discussed, really help prioritize the social non non physiologic, perhaps um, the social financial challenges that patients and families have.
0: Mm -hmm. So this sounds amazing. I mean, this sounds like what, you know, has been described in the past as, as you know, there's been a lot of like research and work done on what an ideal primary care clinical environment would look like. And it almost always comes down to it's better for primary care to be done by a team where you have different people with different skill sets working together instead of plopping it all on one clinician to shepherd uh, the patient through all of this. And um, so you have a team doing amazing things. And I guess the question for me is, you know, so how do you make it work financially and how does Oak Street Health afford it? Because often we hear doctors say that, you know, they don't get paid enough to take care of Medicare patients who have all these complexities. So how have you, what's the, what are some of the ways that you've uh, been able to make it work financially?
1: Yeah. And, and by the way, I would love to come back to the topic of how does a team work together yeah. and the leadership required in the culture. But specifically with, with the financial topic, um, you know, look, I should start by saying that Everyone that uh, I went to medical school with and I trained with, um, almost without exception, they're good people who are trying to help others. So, uh, so this is not placing blame on on people. Uh, I, I think the blame lies in the structure of the system. And Oak Street has really a part of our innovation has been to get out of the existing structure. And the existing structure is one that we call fee for service. Um, it is one where doctor does service, patient pays fee. Um, that means or insurance that pays the fee. Yeah, exactly. Um, p- payer of some kind, typically a combination of patient and somebody else, an insurance company or Medicare or Medicaid, pays that bill. And and it, it, again, designed with the best of intentions, but that that creates really strange incentives. Um, you know, fee for service is the same way that uh, that when we go get a haircut, the way that that works, right? You you but you you would you sit down in the chair, they cut your hair, you pay them, and you're done. Um, you know. It would never work if you showed up to get your haircut, you showed up on time, 25 minutes later, they came and got you, they cut the right half and then said, look, we're done and out of time, go home, come back in two weeks, we'll finish the left half and I'm going to charge you both times. Right. Because uh, really what you didn't pay for, you didn't pay for the, their best effort, you paid to get your haircut. And what we need to do in medicine and what we're doing at Oakseed is transitioning away from this idea that you you pay for the service, you pay for the visit, you pay for the drug, what you need to pay for is the health outcome. You pay for, I understand what my medical conditions are. I have a plan, uh, and the plan is working. And that's a really, you know, as you start to plan that out, it's not simple. And fee-for-service can be very simple, but it turns out it doesn't generate the behaviors that we want. You know, the, the story I told you of showing up on time, waiting a long time, not getting a lot of time with your doctor, not understanding things, and, and leaving with a referral and a medication. That is all perfectly explained by a fee-for-service environment. It wants to see as many patients do as much, uh, bill as much as possible. It's just not what patients want. Right. So for us at Oak Street, what, what we decided to do from day one was change that, flip that to what we call a, a value-based model, meaning we should get paid, our our success should be based upon the value we deliver to patients. That does actually mean that if we don't take measurably better care of patients, we should go out of business. And the way that works is we are given a flat fee and that flat fee we have at Oak Street and we use that to take care of our patients. And if we do a better job, meaning keeping people help, happy, healthy, and out of the hospital, then we get to keep any extra that's around. And if we don't, then then we have to pay that extra. And there's a little bit more detail there, which we can certainly go into, but that's the introduction.
0: Okay, well, so this sounds kind of like uh, the old HMO model. So, and you're taking care of people who are on Medicare and Medicaid. So it sounds like what Oak Street Health does is instead of being, um, uh, instead of billing Medicare or Medicaid for every little visit and every little piece fee for service when people come in, you've arranged with those payers to be paid a certain amount of money to take care of each patient, and then you get to decide on how to manage that care, and you're held responsible in a certain way for the outcomes of those patients so so are you guys a special kind of medicare hmo
1: so this is you're you're taking us right into some of the details here so uh, we we can go super deep um so
0: well we'll go medium because i I don't know that everybody in the uh the audience the regular people want to hear all the details but i think people are familiar with the HMO question. And many, yeah. a fair number of people do have Medicare Advantage, are on some kind of Medicare Advantage plan instead of being on Medicare fee for service. But I think most of them are still not getting the experience you're getting at Oak Street. That's but right. yeah, yeah, tell us a little bit more about how how you guys are making it work, this kind of Medicare, we'll say, Advantage arrangement.
1: Yeah. So so actually, um, we're, we're not uh, a health insurance company. We don't sell health insurance. Um, we actually have a lot of patients who are not on Medicare Advantage plans. Um, it is our goal, and we are slowly moving down this path um, to where our patients choose the, the, the health plan or the Medicare benefit that is right for them. And it has no – that way they do what's right for them. And it turns out that's always what's right for us as well. Um, it, there's a lot of complexity behind that. Um, I think you're right that the easiest example to use is a Medicare Advantage HMO. But just to be clear, about half our patients uh, have Medicare Medicaid, and they are they're dually eligible, as we talked about. Another thirty percent have Medicare Advantage. Uh, a small slice of our patients actually only have Medicaid, uh, and then the rest are are in traditional Medicare. And we are moving uh, in in behind the scenes in a way that doesn't affect our patients, and our patients typically wouldn't even know about this; they wouldn't notice moving our, our, the way that Oak Street is paid by the payer, uh, to these value-based arrangements.
0: So, so even if someone has Medicare fee for service, they'll come see you and you actually will get paid fee for service. Yep. You're just, you just have an organizer clinic to optimize fee for service payments.
1: That's right. They're going to experience the same care model. Um, it's now in, in full transparency, fee for service Medicare does not have the level of data sharing uh, that 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 Medicare Advantage and and the other more integrated models do. For example, somebody on a is a traditional Medicare beneficiary, uh, we are not alerted when they end up in the hospital. We we may not know until 3 or 4 days after they get home from the hospital because they call us and tell us.
0: That is just However, that is shocking. I mean, I'm not surprised, but I think people often don't realize that. <laughs> and it it so is amazing. Honestly, it's, it's yeah,
1: it's a really important I think it's a really important distinction because, um, you know, I think there are a lot of folks who look at health plans and and can say, well, what do they do? They don't they don't do anything. But a lot of the infrastructure that that helps us understand when our sickest patients end up in the hospital, our care teams mobilize and go to the hospital physically to see those folks and help start to plan their transition home. We don't know if if they're not a part of of one of these. Um, managed care plans. And, and for me, that's just another point to think about in considering that. I'd like to step back, though, and really just describe our patients aren't going to notice. They should, they should choose the, the health plan arrangement and then that's best for them. But on the Oak Street side, they're going to receive the same care model insofar as we have the data to provide it. Uh, that's the caveat from before. But now that we have this incentive, if you think about it, if we get if we get a, a, a check once a year to take care of a patient, there are two things to know. Number one, it does not cost a lot of money to do a clinic visit, maybe $100. But if somebody goes to the hospital, the average Oak Street patient, their hospitalization is going to cost $18,000.
0: And hold on, is is Oak Street Health on the hook for that, or who's on the hook for that? We are. You are, uh, okay. With the
1: exception of, of Medicare's co-pays, which, which we actually can't change those, um, at least to date, and we would we would love to you know be a part of of changing some of the way these things work, but that's a very long game. But Oak Street pays those, and that's a really important thing to know. Divide eighteen thousand dollars by a hundred, that's hundred and eighty clinic visits for the price of one hospitalization. That means we can do one hundred and seventy nine hosp- clinic visits. And if we prevent one hospitalization, the patient's better off, they didn't get sick enough to go to the hospital, and Oak Street has saved money.
0: Well, you can also, uh, I assume you can also, uh, you know, not just do clinic visits, but do phone calls to, to check in. And there yeah. are, because there are all these other ways that as a primary care team, we can partner with patients that don't require them to physically come in every single time
1: so what you're describing is exactly the oak street model so now over the last five years we have invested in things like care managers longer visits we have a fleet of 80 something vans that bring people to and from their clinic appointments at no cost to them to try to increase access we do we will do several thousand house calls where our care teams go to the home to deliver care for patients who are having a hard time getting into clinic we will go to the hospitals to visit patients when they're in the hospital. We have technologies that allow us to do remote monitoring so that we're able to track patients and their conditions at home. And we don't bill for any of those services because it's not the point. The point is that we all know, and, and you and I know and listeners know, those are things that just make sense. But in a traditional fee-for-service system, no one has the incentive to invest in those things. And that's what makes our model Really powerful and couple that economic model with a team who's value driven and and value based like We we, our mission is to rebuild healthcare as it should be and it should be personal It should be equitable and it should be accountable and that economic model is just what allows us to go pursue that Mm -hmm. mission
0: And now when people are more homebound or have more problems uh, Are you getting paid a larger amount every year to take care of them?
1: So it's not really. We're not paid extra to deliver those services. We're paid an amount that is called what's called risk adjusted. Okay. And this is this is a really important concept. Not for Oak Street. Not for Medicare. Um, globally, you know, when you when you look uh, when you look around the world, whether it's in the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, um, in in any other system really one of the challenges is how do we match need with resources? Rather than saying we, we have all of these resources, and we're going to give them equally to each person. What you would rather do is not give too much to healthy people and too little to sick people. You want to give the right amount to each person. And so this really started with an academic question um, in, in, in academic settings decades ago and moved forward into what really in the 90s became um, what in the United States is called the HCC model. Um, and, and now has become that model is the largest, most robust, uh, risk adjustment model that's out there really with the goal of letting Medicare say, look, we, we take taxpayer money and it is our job to deliver on the promise of, of 1965, the social security act and where Medicare came from, how are we going to match resource to need? Yeah. And just to
0: to clarify for the audience and correct me, it's been a while since I've done one of the HCC forms, but, but in that model, the, the, the doctor or the, the clinic uh, every year fills out a long questionnaire about the patient, about what kinds of chronic conditions that they have. And so you have to sort of get some kind of snapshot of the person's health. And that uh, sort of then corresponds to how much uh, how much the doctor might be paid for overseeing their care over the following year. Is that about right?
1: So I'm actually glad you bring it up. I, I think in rough senses, you're right. I think there's some really important clarifications. Frankly, as, as a practitioner, when you describe it that way, as a form you fill out, um, Oak Street and it does not tend to take uh, policy positions on things. But I'll tell you, I, we believe this is really important. It's not a form. Right? It actually turns out that what Medicare does is look across the year and says, what are the conditions that have been diagnosed in this patient over the course of the year? And you're right. As soon as something involves reimbursement, other people are going to get involved to try to make it a form that you fill out. Really what it is, is how well do you get to know your patient do appropriate evidence-based screening and then and then just accurately and specifically document the conditions that they have. And, and so for example, there are there are certainly practices in this country that will just send someone to a patient's home who's not seen them before, is never going to see them again, and document their conditions. For us at Oak Street, that, that's not the point, right? The po- point is create access to healthcare. Know really well the healthcare problems that a patient may have, document them, and then move forward taking care of them. And what's been very interesting is CMS, who administers Medicare Medicaid, is up to this that they understand, and and they're trying to solve for the balance between number one, we want to match resource to need, but number two, this can't be a game for people to go make money. Uh, and, and and so what's been very very interesting is as CMS has frankly, to their credit, worked really hard to make reimbursement and to make risk adjustment clinically relevant. They've made it harder and harder and harder for people who aren't really taking care of patients to do this well, but frankly, like made a smarter program for those of us who what we're trying to do is in in the existing relationship we have with patients, just accurately document the conditions that they have. And we take a lot of pride in Oak Street and it's not an event. It's not a thing you do once a year. Uh, as a part of your relationship, seeing a patient, right, seeing them on average eight times in clinic, how well can we get to know someone and how well can we equip our teams to, to keep an up-to-date problem list and have a plan for each item on that problem list? So for us, it's it's not a once-a-year form you fill out. It's really just a, a, a way of thinking about taking care of patients that we think is really different, but also Leads to us taking better care of patients. The example I'll give you is, when when people have a diagnosis of diabetes at Oak Street, it's it's not just on a form. They're now enrolled in all of our registries and our diabetes disease management programs. We're going to get our teams get special reporting on those folks. Uh, we are going to going to deliver evidence based guidelines to our teams to help them manage those conditions. It's far more important to us to have them tracked into a program that allows us to deliver better outcomes. Uh, for example, every diabetic patient, because they have that condition, is needs a diabetic retinal eye exam. We have a machine in every one of our clinics to help do that dilated retinal eye exam in the clinic so they don't have to leave the building and go somewhere else. That's not a form filled out for revenue purposes. That's a whole track around guideline and evidence-based care.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've been able to do this really wonderful job integrating the care that people need to optimize their health with also capturing the data and information both so that you yourself can take better care of them and also relay whatever is needed to your payers or to the you know the other administrators around you because i think at at a, at the clinic where i was at 5 years ago it's not that we particularly wanted to do it as a form but i think we for a variety of reasons didn't have we didn't have the infrastructure technologically to capture the information very effectively at that time. And some of our payers were sending us the form and saying, well, we need this information about your your patients. And, you know, one of the things that primary care doctors often complain about is that they're so burdened by mm-hmm. administrative requirements and by paperwork. And I think that is partly a reflection of whether the clinic has been designed to make it easy and seamless to capture this information that, uh, you know, that is useful for, for, for quality measures, for figuring out just, you know, how much, uh, it's a very wonky term, how much risk a person is at, but really, you know, how much they have going on with their health so that you can allocate resources appropriately to support them. And it sounds like the, the, you guys have designed a clinic that makes that more seamless so that the doctor is less actively being there as a data clerk, you know, that's a complaint that a lot of doctors have. And it's one of the reasons why often they have less time to speak to patients and partner with them and do things that really can't be done <laughs> by a machine.
1: Yeah, I, I I would add two things there. I think number one, if if you can tell it's a topic we care about, it's because I think it's very easy to be cynical about the risk adjustment model. And I, we at Oak Street, really frankly think CMS is providing a lot of leadership on the topic because it's it's a question of health equity. You know, I, I once heard a story, um, this is probably ten years ago about a health plan that put its enrollment office on the second floor. Uh, of a building in a nice neighborhood. The reason being is, if you're in a nice neighborhood, you're just getting people with fancy insurance. And if it's on the second floor, only people healthy enough to walk exactly. up the stairs can get right. insurance. So for me, and, and for us at Oak Street, the reason we really appreciate the the risk adjustment methodology is it begins to level the playing field for people who are either of low income um, or, or who who were sick, and they begin to now get the services that they need, and and so look, you, if you're building an operation around the form you have to fill out in 2017 to get paid, that's not a lasting, meaningful enterprise, and it's also it's not solving a hard problem, uh, it's not solving what patients need. For us, that methodology is going to change. So rather. We've built an organization and a culture and a set of routines that no matter what the, the methodology is, um, we're going to be aligned with this idea that we want to match resource to need and help take care of our sickest patients. That's number one. The second thing was your comment around what it feels like to be a clinician today. I think a physician especially because that that's where a lot of these conversations are going on and being a, a data entry person. Um you know, For us, it, it really is truly about having everybody on the team, and the buzzword you'll hear is work to the limit of the license, but it's something that we've really invested in, and that's what team-based care is. Every single care team at Oak Street has a person whose only job is to get information that clinic teams need out of our data tools into their brains and available at the point of care, and then from that point of care, through the conversations, interaction with the patients into our record systems and into the systems that we need to take better care of patients. And so there's a little bit of, everybody can say it, but until you start making real investments, it it won't change. And and where that really becomes interesting and challenging sort of comes back to our previous conversation is, it means, however, if you're going to invest in these teams and these tools, it means that the clinician's role is going to change. And it's it's now not about uh, running everything front to back. It's about, Really, three things. Number one, making medical decisions, high quality medical decisions. Number two, um, building a relationship with a patient and their family. And the third thing is you actually have to be a leader, you have to be a manager and a leader of your team. And that's a skill set that is new to a lot of folks and something that I think represents a lot of promise, um, not just for patients and the quality of care they're going to get. but for physicians and what it feels like to deliver care. Um, but it requires training and resourcing in a different culture and a different way of thinking about it. And and we have really tried to take a leadership position on that at Oak Street.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also just, you know, in terms of um, uh, working as part of a team, I'm sure that the skills that you have to practice and develop as a clinician in Partnering with your teammates also extends to better partnering with the patient and family because you know historically, I think a lot of doctors have not been that good at partnering with their patients. You know, it's been very kind of one way and directive. Do this, do that, and the clinician kind of is doing their own thinking and not necessarily sharing it with uh, the patient and family. Whereas probably what's better is to 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 work on mutually agreed on health goals together and to really have more conversation discourse with a patient with the family so that you can come up with medical care that that's a that's a good fit for their preferences for what's going on in their life we know that often um, doctors don't know much about what's going on in the person's life even though that's actually super important to their health so I would think that developing those skills and better communicating with your colleagues is also really useful in terms of a more fruitful partnership with the patients and families
1: yeah, I look, I, I, you know, I 100% agree. And I, I love the way you say it. I, I, I have found and we have found at Oak Street that um, it actually relieves pressure from from physicians and nurse practitioners and clinicians really sort of uh, people who are tasked with making medical decisions to know that they don't have to always be the person leading uh, the relationship. And what's been interesting is in the lives of a lot of people, the the most highly educated, most highly paid, and therefore most intimidating person in their life is their doctor. And the pressure is gone when they realize, you know what, Uh, I'm going to hear from my care manager every three or four days, and I'm going to see my doctor every two or three weeks. Uh, It's very natural then to have a stronger relationship with the care manager. And if you've created a team structure and a team environment and a way of communicating that works... And everybody's aligned that, that you know, I don't necessarily, as the doctor, have to be in charge of everything all the time. Um, we've actually seen that work really well. Uh, and it is different, but but there's a little bit of uh, what we call disagree and, and commit, uh, where new docs will come in and spend time and there's a little bit of uneasiness because it's the first time they've done it. But, you know, after the first 60 days or so, it becomes pretty natural that each patient is going to have a different person on the care team that they gravitate to. And it'll evolve pretty naturally. But it all of a sudden means that now it's it's pretty natural that when something's going on, that person's going to going to play a leadership role with that patient and family And it'll depend upon the circumstances, someone with some more social needs. It may be the care manager, um, someone who who has, you know, more complex medical illness. Uh, It may be, you know, it it, it may be the physician. Um, But we've seen it even be that we have nurses with special interests in mental health, and behavioral health and patients struggling with those conditions may naturally gravitate to their nurse. Um, it just depends. But having a team really equips our, 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 you know, equips our teams to handle whatever comes at them.
0: OK, well, that's great. So let me ask you about something else, how you manage something else. One of the things that I write about a lot on the website and I talk about a lot on the podcast and really kind of the reason why I do this is because geriatrics care means health care that's been modified so that it better fits older adults, both their health needs and then their sort of social And life needs, because we know that often older people end up getting kind of the same medical care as would be given to somebody who is, you know, 40 or 50 or, you know, may not have the special considerations that are going on. And that has implications for how we manage chronic illnesses. They often should be managed somewhat differently as people get older. And then also for just, you know, common problems that come up as people get older, like medication side effects, having your medications affect your memory or thinking and falls and so geriatrics is the knowledge base that that has sort of yeah. figured out the better ways to do this, and geriatricians are specially trained in this. But not everybody can see a geriatrician, and so I was kind of curious. You have, uh, I mean, Oak Street Health has grown a lot. You have how many clinics right now? Twenty four. Twenty four. Okay, so you have lots and lots of both physicians and then nurse practitioners and and other clinicians who are there working with this mostly older population, and I have to assume that not all your physicians are board-certified geriatricians. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you are able to help your clinicians provide this geriatric-style care, even though many of them will not have done the formal training.
1: Yeah, so first of all, it turns out actually about half our physicians are Board-certified geriatricians, but you're right, not all.
0: That's impressive, uh, though, because I feel like there are not so many of them, and everyone's always sort of complaining that it's hard to find or hire a geriatrician. Although it may yeah. speak to the fact that you've provided an, a work environment that I think would be extremely attractive <laughs> to geriatricians.
1: <laughs> well, look, I, you know, we just got the results. We, we, we have a, a what we call grand rounds, which is a, a conference for our medical group once a quarter, and just got the data back it's an anonymous survey from all of our our docs and NPs and it's a really happy group. It's a really energized group. Um, When we compare their results to benchmarks out there, I mean, this is like 98% say they're very or somewhat engaged in the practice and this is the best place for them to achieve their potential. It's like really high numbers. So you're right. They're happy people. And I do think there's a little bit of sorting there. Um, I, I would say three things really about creating an environment uh, a practice environment that's not just friendly to, to older adults, but is designed to deliver better healthcare. The first is actually simple um, and not that flashy, but, but matters, which is it's the environment, it's the space. So when we build our clinics, we, we work with an architect who's really experienced in designing spaces specifically for older adults. And some of it's basic, right? Um, doors that will open automatically at the push of a button, wide hallways, Uh, but then you can get into more subtle things, non-stick surfaces so so we can reduce fall risk and uh, work better with people who may have a walker, Um, non-glare surfaces, which is nice for people with macular degeneration. Um, Glare may make it hard for folks with macular degeneration to to see appropriately. Um, There there are things just to, to equip our 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 practice buildings, the environment themselves, um, to be more friendly, more conducive to engaging for for older adults. The second is the culture and and really the space. And this is subtle, you know, but I I think for me, um, I I hope to someday be a a very older adult. Uh, I'm not one now. Our team is not all made up of me. Um, We have uh, members of the team who are in the age group which we care for, who play a really important role in designing what it is to experience the Oak Street care model. Uh, everything from the way that we work with people on the phone, um, to the way that technology participates in the practice. Uh, an example I'll give you is, we, we actually do, uh, you know, our, our, our services um, can, we have, a, we have a, a, a web-based platform for patients to um, follow along with their care and access their records. Um, you know, but it turns out under 35 percent, under 30 percent really of our patients use smartphones, but the vast majority use SMS. So we do a lot of SMS based outreach to patients rather than a lot of smartphone, uh, a lot of re- outreach that requires smartphones. That's one example. Um, separately, there there's sort of this idea um, that I think is, is common in the public that people's um, you know, once you're over 65 or over 60, something changes, and all of a sudden you become a certain thing, and that's really not true. Um, we have a community center in every one of our practices that's really built around creating community for older adults. Um, there's there's you know nothing terribly fancy, but uh, free coffee and tea and light snacks. Um, And every day there's at least two uh, different events going on in our community center. And there are things that are health related and older adults related. You can learn about Medicare benefits. Um, You know, you will have a, a, you know, a a specialist come and give give a talk on breast cancer screening. But most of those events are fun events. Karaoke. We'll have aldermen in the area and the neighborhood come call bingo. Uh, we do senior speed dating, so we can help people get to know each other in the community a little bit better and and maybe start new relationships. So I think that's the first part, which is create a, a culture and a way that we interact. That um, you know, there's a difference between um, there's just a, a, it, it's not quite as as different as I think people in in the the wider community would say to be an older adult, and, and we've tried to embrace that in the way that we interact and the third piece is finally we'll get to clinically uh what's different and we really don't believe that all things you know that one size fits all at Oak Street i'm i'm trained for example to take care of everything from infants to to older adults um but the care required is different. The time required is different. The resources are different. Um, you know, the, the example that I'll give you is: we have equipment in, in our clinics to do, like I said, dilated retinal eye exams for uh, adults who have diabetes who who may need those tests. Uh, we we don't have equipment to to help uh, 23-year-old pregnant moms um, do a non-stress test because uh, it's not who we take care of. And and we talked a lot of before about all the things that are very different. The last thing I'd add is in that clinical part is a lot of our continuing medical education and a lot of the training we do with our teams, virtually all of it is oriented around conditions that folks in a geriatric population would face. You know, our last, our recent Grand Rounds talks have been on, um, you know, managing diabetes in older populations, uh, have been on, you know, some of the the new uh, pacemakers and other cardiac devices.
0: Well, here uh, let, let me let me ask you about. about well, sorry to cut you off. Let me ask you about something no. kind of uh, specific. So, um, on a previous episode, just recently, episode 46, my guest was Kara uh, Tannenbaum, a geriatrician who is really focused right now on deprescribing for older adults because it's so common for older adults to be prescribed medications that that are on the beers list, basically, right? The list of medications yep, yep, yep. that are potentially inappropriate for older adults. So we're talking about um, sedatives such as benzodiazepines, anticholinergics, such as uh, sedating antihistamines. So opiates are actually not on the beers list, although they certainly should be prescribed with uh, with caution. But but Dr. Tannenbaum has especially done a lot of work on the deprescribing of sedatives and medications that... We know really increased fall risk or decreased thinking because it's so common for these to be prescribed to older adults, you know, which is partly reflective of a lot of clinicians not really adapting their prescribing practices for their older patients or not changing them as people get older. So so for instance, like do you have a kind of system or method at Oak Street Health to minimize the prescribing of those medications in, uh, in the clinic. And I should emphasize, you know, sometimes uh, it's not that it's always wrong to prescribe them, but that there should be, you know, kind of more careful thinking about it than there often is in the usual practice environments.
1: Yeah, uh, we actually employ pharmacists and have pharmacies in many of our practices. But pharmacists who, who some of whom don't even sit in our clinics, who really day in and day out will review medication lists, new prescriptions, especially in transitions and care when people are going to and from the hospital uh, to do exactly that, to do an evidence-based assessment of those medications. And in many cases, not just give the best evidence answer as to what medications the patient should and should not be on, but the the right doses, the right formulation, and frankly, help with affordability. So 100%, and and again, going back to a comment from before, if 99% of our patients' lives is spent outside the four walls of our clinic, really the most important lever we have to help them manage their, their physiologic challenges, the the medical conditions they have is medications. And if we aren't doing that right, then we're not doing them a service. And we've invested a lot of time, a lot of money uh, into our pharmacy team to help get it right.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, I mean, I think it comes down to kind of having like infrastructure and systems that makes it much easier for the clinical team to do the right thing or to address common issues that come up for older adults than it is in a usual clinic. So earlier you mentioned technology and I was hoping in the the, the last part of our talk together that we could talk a little bit about the technologies that you're using at Oak Street Health, especially as it relates to patients. I think you were saying that you found ways to monitor, help them monitor some of their conditions at home and also to stay in touch with them, for instance, through SMS. So tell us a little bit more about what technologies you found especially helpful, especially when it comes to to helping people manage their conditions at home or to being in touch with them.
1: Yeah, I, I'll try to be structured because we've done a lot here. Um, you know, so I kind of break it up into there. There's technologies that help us as a platform take better care of people, and then there's technologies that we use as structured outreach to to care for our patients and interact with them when they're not in the home. Uh, on the first, you know, I, I think your listeners are pro- will probably recognize the term EMR, electronic medical record, uh, which is the idea that we're going to have a database to store our information. Um, those have transitioned over time to become really the tool that many clinicians and most practices use. And, and it, frankly, rather than they dictate how that tool works, that tool dictates how they work. And so we've come to the conclusion, and it's a little provocative, but there is no perfect EMR to deliver high quality, culturally competent, community based, value based primary care to older adults. Uh, that means we got to build that. And so a lot of the technologies and tools that we've built really. Every conversation we've had today, we have some underlying tool that we've either had to build or adapt uh, to the users, um, both on our team and our patients. And that's I think that's been a lot of what we've done at Oak that's been innovative and valuable and we could spend forever talking about it. Um, But that that's really the platform part that just ensures we take consistent, high quality, high safety care. The second piece is how are we using technology to outreach to our patients? I mentioned one around SMS, which has actually been um, really cool and smart and has been well-received, and, and I'll admit that we're in early stages on both of these because early our early results have shown such, such promise. On the SMS side, for example, um, before Thanksgiving, for example, we will, our teams um, centrally are able to pull all of our patients with congestive heart failure and using an SMS technology, have an automated conversation with those folks to say, remember, you have congestive heart failure. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving. You're going to sit down and eat more salt tomorrow than typical, which puts you at risk for a hospital admission. Here are the things you should know. Please call us. Do you have any questions? If so, and, and we will reach out to folks who identify themselves saying, yeah, I'd like to talk about that. That's one thing that's been pretty powerful. But again, we're we're in the early innings there. The second one is is remote home monitoring, and and we're seeing some really early nice results with things like um, cell phone enabled scales. There's a scale that in our patient's bathroom that we're able to give them, they get on it every day. Not only does it tell us that they're home, they're able to get up and get on the scale, but it tells us are there fluctuations in their weight that may suggest things like congestive heart failure uh, is getting worse. And we've been excited to see the results. Our teams have really taken to it as a way to keep an eye on our patients, and we're excited to extend that into some other things, such as blood pressure monitoring uh, and other things in the home that we'll be doing uh, here pretty soon.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if whether you're also doing um, home blood pressure monitors and whether they're sort of connected to to the clinic. Not quite yet. Yeah, not quite
1: yet. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Leslie, that we're I'm I'm personally really excited about this. Our team is as well. If you want to get a little bit uh, nerdy and somewhat provocative about it, um, our our belief is that far more important than the what you do at this point with these technologies is the who you do it to and with, mm. um, because choosing the wrong patients not only um, not only does it mean that you may not be able to have the impact that you want. Um, they're less likely to engage with it, and and I think the the opportunity for clinical impact is less. And and an example of that is, uh, you know, someone who has you know just very very low grade hypertension that we could probably manage pretty aggressively, pretty well with 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 other options. If you give them a device, you're less likely to see over your whole population the improvements you want to see than if you select the right patient. And, and we're beginning to see that, and that's probably a whole conversation for another time. Right. Uh, so I think it represents great promise and a lot of collaboration between uh, technology makers and groups like Oak Street, but very early innings.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so still on the front of technology, you know, there's, uh, one of my other interests, as you know, is sort of newer technologies for older adults. I have the blog at, at, uh, Jerry tech and I'll be going, um, later this fall to the aging 2.0 conference where they're going to be presenting a lot of, uh, innovations. And there's been a lot of interest these past few years in technologies that can help people age in place. And age better. And I was just wondering whether any of those have caught your eye that you think might be promising for helping all these older adults that you're working with and, you know, helping to maintain health wise. Anything that that you find interesting or particularly useful?
1: Yeah, look, we're we're looking at a lot of those things. And I think what's exciting about the Oak Street model is because we have this really powerful incentive to deliver measurably better care we're willing to make these investments and and frankly what i would challenge people who are making technologies because we are creating tools and technologies internally to oak street but to people who are going to be building you know devices that go in the home and wearables and things like that that that's not what we do at oak street and and there are people out there who do that i would really encourage them to to think about how to how how older adults can better engage with those products because you know, I recently heard a story uh, of an organization that made some kind of wearable and they had such a hard time finding a value proposition and finding a way to get to where patients wanted to use it, that they've now moved into working with veterinarians and trying to use these with pets.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and I say that to say that uh, I would love for technology makers to get more practical, to listen better uh, to patients and to find better ways to to really integrate that into the into what older adults are looking for, um, I, I I think that you know our, our SMS approach. Not again, I'm very biased, not not to shine our team, but you know our our patients are using SMS. Not all of them are using smartphones. So if you make a technology requirement a, a smartphone, you're going to miss out on helping a lot of people. Uh, I would encourage them to get really really practical. Uh, so those are the kinds of technologies we get excited about.
0: Right. Okay. Well, this has been fantastic. So I guess in closing, I would just say, you know, Oak Street Health Clinics sound amazing. It sounds like a really wonderful place to get one's primary care. And so tell us a little bit about where your clinics are and are they taking new patients? And if any of the listeners are interested and want to look into it, how can they find out more?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I think this has been an important conversation and People really should. I, I hope that they agree with us that one size does not fit all uh, and that models like this uh, are, are the right ones. Um, we have 24 practices in Detroit, uh, Chicago, Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, Rockford, Northwest Indiana, and soon to have some more in Philadelphia. Um, but anybody in any of those areas, is we are absolutely accepting new patients. Uh, it would be the privilege of our lives to, to care for any of your listeners uh, or their families. And the number to call is 844-808-8262.
0: Okay, well, and I'll put a link too to Oak Street Health on the show notes yep. and people are often I think able to click links from their their uh, phones or whatever they're using to listen to the podcast. So
1: It is www.oakstreethealth.com.
0: Okay, sounds All great. Spelled out. Well, Griffin, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it. And, you know, thank you for taking this on, this creation of this really innovative, built-from-the-ground-up approach to providing primary care for older adults. I think it's uh, it's inspiring, it's exciting, and I just look forward to seeing it continue to grow and to more people being able to access this kind of care.
1: Uh, you're very nice. We have a great team and a great mission. Thank you.
0: And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some of the links to some of the resources I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Carneson and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.